Um, so we've started, we've just started um, a series in the book of Nehemiah. Um, and actually, before, before I talk about that, I'll just say we've just had a, a week of prayer. Who came along to some aspect of the week of prayer this week? It was brilliant. Um, I really loved this morning. I went up and I just looked in the upstairs hall where we had our 24 hours of prayer and just reading the prayers and seeing the pictures on the walls of, of where God's been speaking into our hearts. It's just really quite inspiring, quite exciting. And I just uh, wanted to thank in particular Sue. Where's Sue? There she is, Sue Ferret, for coming in on a day off to get that all ready for us. So, And Bev, using her creativity. Very nice. So thank you so much for creating that environment so we could really seek God and pray. And uh, yeah, it was a really good time. So thanks for that. Um, last week, Rebecca kicked off our new series based on the book of Nehemiah. And um, you can, you can read through the book of um, Nehemiah over the next couple of weeks if you're up for it. Um, but actually, you, and you can listen to her sermon from last week online. Um, and it's gonna, this series is going to take us through from now all the way till the end of November, and then we'll be into Advent. So it's a, a good chunk of time. And she gave us a few little bits of information, inside information about Nehemiah that I think are, are really important, and I just wanted to uh, go over them very quickly. First of all, the book of Nehemiah is the second half of a book, because actually Ezra, which is the book just before Nehemiah, and Nehemiah used to be one book. Um, so Nehemiah is the second half of a book, and that's helpful because when we start reading today, we're going to be thrown into this story quite dramatically, and you'll be thinking, wow, wh who's this guy? Where's he from? Actually, if you read Ezra and read right through to Nehemiah, it makes a little bit more sense. Secondly, she talks about the significance of the, the moment in biblical history where Nehemiah comes onto the scene. And I wanted just to very quickly go over that again, just to, because I think today it's going to be really helpful to know where we are in terms of biblical history. So, God made for himself a people called the Israelites, and he gave them a kingdom which became known as Israel. And under King David, they became a great nation, and many nations around feared them. They were, they were strong, they were mighty, and they loved God. And God made a promise. He said, as long as you love me, as long as you keep close to me, as you keep obeying my commands, that will go well with you. But the day you start messing around with idols or other gods from other nations, things are going to start to unravel. And he warned them. He said, if you keep doing that kind of thing, if you keep... Um, worshipping other idols, then I'm going to have to take you out of your land and put you somewhere else. But the Israelites didn't really heed that warning and they continued to, they started worshipping other idols and uh, idols and other gods from other nations. And God came with prophet after prophet after prophet warning the Israelites, stop uh, going to other idols and going to um, other gods and worshipping them. Worship and serve the Lord your God only, but they didn't. So eventually God said, did what he said he was going to do, and he sent the Babylonians, and had got, he had his people taken out of Jerusalem and into Babylon, and they were held captive there. Uh, they were exiles living in Babylon for many years. At the same time, the Babylonians took all of the, the wealth from Israel, from, um, from the, uh, Jerusalem, from the temple and took it with them to Babylon. This is important for later on. And, um, and they destroyed the temple 
and they destroyed the city walls, city of Jerusalem. With, uh, they, they knocked down the walls and they burnt the gates. So it was a pretty serious situation. A few years later, the Babylonians are taken over by another group called the Persians. So the, the Jews who are living in Babylonia, uh, in Babel, now become uh, subject to the Persian Empire. And God softens the heart of a Persian king called Cyrus. And he allows some of the Jews to go back to Jerusalem to start rebuilding the temple. And then he stops it. A few years after that, God raises up another king called Artaxerxes. I got it right. I've been trying, I've been practicing that all week. <laughs> Artaxerxes. I don't care if it's not how we say it. That's how we're saying it today. Um, Artaxerxes. And God does something m- amazing in that guy's heart. Okay? He's a Persian king, pagan king, has got nothing, doesn't know Yahweh, doesn't know the God of the Bible. But he does something, and I don't know whether it's out of fear or out of love, but Artaxerxes can't do enough to help the people of God. He can't do enough to help the Jews. I mean, listen to this. So in Ezra chapter 7, this is what he does. He goes to Ezra and says, you and any Jews that want to go back to Jerusalem can go back. Not only that, you can take the treasure that the Babylonians took from you back with you to Jerusalem. Not only that, but if there's any costs incurred in rebuilding um, Jerusalem or you know, you've got any problems and you need, you need money, you can charge that back to my empire. Not only that, he says, when you get there, don't teach them the Persian laws. Teach them the laws of your God. I mean, it's pretty incredible, isn't it? What, a, what favor this man seems to have, and I don't know why it is. So that's the situation we're in at the moment. Ezra's gone, and he's gone back to Jerusalem, and he's looking to rebuild that society. Some of the Jews have gone back to Jerusalem with him, and some have remained to continue serving the Persians. Nehemiah is one of the guys that has stayed to serve under the Persians. So in a moment, we're gonna, Sue's going to come up and read. You could come up now if that's all right. And read the first chapter and a bit of the second chapter. Then we're going to spend a bit of time getting to know Nehemiah and his situation, his personal situation. And then we're going to look, take some time to look at how he responds to some pretty serious, uh, pretty horrific news. So over to Sue. Um. Okay, so this is from Nehemiah chapter 1. These are the memoirs of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. This is Nehemiah's concern for Jerusalem. In late autumn, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was at the fortress of Susa. Hananiah, one of my brothers, came to visit me with some other men who had just arrived from Judah. And I asked them about the Jews who had returned there from captivity and about how things were going in Jerusalem. They said to me, things are not going well for those who have returned to the province of Judah. They are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. When I heard this, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned, fasted and prayed to the God of heaven. And then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of unfailing love with those who love him and obey his commands, listen to my prayer. 
Look down and see me praying night and day for your people Israel. I confess that we have sinned against you. Yes, even my own family and I have sinned. We have sinned terribly by not obeying the commands, decrees and regulations that you gave us through your servant Moses. Please remember what you told your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful to me, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands and live by them, then even if you are exiled to the ends of the earth, I will bring you back to the place I have chosen for my name to be honoured. The people you rescued by your great power and strong hand are your servants, O Lord. Please hear my prayer. Listen to the prayers of those of us who delight in honouring you. Please grant me success today by making the king favourable to me. Put it into his heart to be kind to me. In those days, I was the king's cupbearer. Early the following spring, in the month of Nisan, during the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was serving the king his wine. I'd never before appeared sad in his presence. So the king asked me, why are you looking so sad? You don't look sick to me. You must be deeply troubled. Oh, then I was terrified. But I replied, long live the king. How can I not be sad? For the city where my ancestors are buried is in ruins. And the gates have been destroyed by fire. And the king asked, well, how can I help you? With a prayer to the God of heaven, I replied, if it please the king, and if you are pleased with me, your servant, send me to Judah to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. The king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked, How long will you be gone? When will you return? After I told him how long I would be gone, the king agreed to my request. Amen. Thank you. So as you can see, we're kind of thrown into a pretty dramatic situation, a pretty dramatic story. And at first glance, you might think we don't learn too much about Nehemiah. But as you kind of look at some of the historical uh, kind of evidence uh, and match it up with what he said, actually you can find out quite a lot of stuff. Firstly, we know it's late autumn uh, when, when he first speaks, which will become important later on. Secondly, we know that Nehemiah is a Jew. Uh, with Hananiah, uh, his, he calls as, as a brother, so he's a Jew. So, uh, thirdly, we know that um, King Artaxerxes, the guy that was so favorable to uh, Ezra, is still the king. That's important in a few minutes' time. And finally, we know that Nehemiah is um, a cupbearer to the king. And a cupbearer in that situation, in, in the Persian society, wasn't just someone who brought the wine. It wasn't someone who tested to check it was poisoned. It was more than that. In the Persian society, a cupbearer was one of the inner circle of the king. They had kind of the ear of the king. The king respected their thought. They had influence over the king. And so a cupbearer was like an elevated place. So there must have been something about Nehemiah that made people think he needs to be promoted, he needs to be promoted, until finally he's serving the king of Persia. So it's, uh, there are some things that are really helpful to know as we go through. And, and, and this is a side point today, but I just wanted to say this. Um, as we go through Nehemiah, you need to remember that he is not a churchman. He is not a 
professional religious guy. He's a, he's a man who's been gifted to work in a secular society so that he can bring the blessing of God into that area. And, and, and as we go through this story and we think about Nehemiah, please don't think of him as a kind of, he's set out to be some kind of religious leader. He hasn't. He's been faithful with what God's given him and, and things have come about because of that. And as you kind of go into your workplace, all the gifts that God's given you, whether it's spiritual gifts or just abilities, they're not just for use at the church. They're not just for kind of... They are, it's important that we use our spiritual gifts here. But actually, you find right throughout biblical history that God gives gifts to people in order to bring blessing even to other nations, even to enemy nations. And it's really important as we go through... I mean, you think of Daniel, who was given such great wisdom to be able to speak um, and, and bring real blessing to the Babylonians of all people. Or you think of... David, uh, you, you think of uh, Joseph, who was given such a vision. And you think of vision, you think, yeah, vision for the church. No, vision for the safety and the protection and the flourishing of Egypt. Or you think of Esther, who had, was given this amazing diplomatic skill that she could talk to a king and talk him round from doing some really hideous crimes against humanity, you could say. And God used her in her gifting in a secular place. So as we go through Nehemiah, don't just see him as a, a guy who, you know, God chose. He's you. He's us. He's, he's, he's us as we just look to bring the kingdom of God into whatever area God calls us into. So the story starts, the report from his brother. I don't know if this is a real brother or, as Simeon says, a brother from another mother. This is, uh, we don't know if it's uh, his actual flesh and blood, but uh, his brother comes along. He was in Egypt, his brother, and, he, and it's about, um, from, from there to where, he, to where uh, Nehemiah is, it's about a thousand miles. And um, so he's done a long journey, it's taken him four months. And Nehemiah says, how's it going in Jerusalem? And he says, things are not going well. Those who returned are in great trouble and disgrace. The walls in Jerusalem have been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. This is seriously bad news. Because, you know, there were only a few more people of God left. The numbers of the Israelites, the number of the Jews had dwindled dramatically. And there was a few left and some of them had gone back to Jerusalem to start work in that place. And the numbers, and they were in big dangerous, in big danger. You know, um, often the Bible describes um, the people of God when they're in exile as a remnant. Do you know what a remnant is? If you go to carpet, right? <laughs> you've got this massive, great, big, beautiful things of carpet, if you like that kind of thing. And then there's a little rubbishy kind of clippings on the side. That's the remnant. And, and, and that's what they're described as. That's what the people have described as. It's like this kind of cut off. And, and even of those cut-offs, some of them are in serious danger because they've gone back to Jerusalem and the walls that protect their city are broken. And what's going to happen? I mean, think of this as an extra thing. Really kindly, King Artaxerxes had sent all the silver and gold from Babylon all the way back. So, so now they're sitting with loads of riches and stuff like that in an unprotected city. They're in serious danger. Anyone from the north, south, east or west Another nation, bandits, could go in and attack at any moment. 
This is a serious situation that they found themselves in. I don't know how you respond in times of distress. For some of us, we'll kind of just collapse on our knees and give in. Oh no, it's all gone wrong. God, maybe you start shouting at God. What have you done, God? Why are you doing that, God? How could you do that, God? Maybe some of us kind of think, all right, if there's a glimmer of hope, it might not be very likely, but if there's a glimmer of hope, we're going to go and we're going to look to sort out that issue. We're going to go and sort out that problem. I don't know how you respond. The more I dwell on Nehemiah's response, the more fascinating I find it, the more challenging I find it. And it makes me think, how much do I really believe and trust in the sovereignty of God? This is what he says. When I heard this, his brother's report, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned, fasted, and prayed to the God of heaven. So he prays, his response is he prays, he seeks God, he weeps, he fasts, and he waits for four months. For four months. Jerusalem is in huge danger. The people are sitting ducks. Nehemiah is an advisor to a king who can't do enough to help the people of Israel, to help the Jews. He'll bend over backwards to help them. And Nehemiah has got his ear. I, do you know what? I think I would be going to the king and saying, you need to help. You need to get something going. And, and Nehemiah doesn't do that. He doesn't go to the king. He goes to God and he prays and he seeks God and he weeps and he fasts and he waits for four months. So often, I think, even us, you kind of think, there's a problem going on in this area. Well, in in our church, we've got 200 people. We could go and sort that issue out. We could go and sort that problem out. But he doesn't do it. He stops and he waits and he prays. I think many of us would be horrified, actually, by Nehemiah's response. How could you do that to your family? Leave them as sitting ducks, you know, a thousand miles away, really in serious amounts of danger. And the people of God could get destroyed in one foul swoop. How could you do that, Nehemiah? But he waits. See, Nehemiah knew that he couldn't rely on his own strength. And he knew that he mustn't put his trust in his king's authority. He knew that he must submit to the king of kings to the sovereignty of the God of heaven. And this is what he says. O Lord, this is his prayer. God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of unfailing love with those who love him and obey his commands. Listen to my prayer. Look down and see me praying day and night for your people Israel. I confess that we have sinned against you. Yes, even my own family and I have sinned. We have sinned terribly by not obeying your commands, creeds and regulations that you gave through your servant Moses. And here's the key to this story. Nehemiah knew that the broken walls of Jerusalem was not the only or even the main danger. He saw that the internal condition of the people of God the state of their hearts before their king was the huge issue at stake. 
And he didn't, just he didn't just identify other people's problems. He didn't just say, look, God, these people of yours, they've got real problems. He identifies himself. He's got problems that he needs to deal with before he can start thinking about building these walls. See, the urgent thing he should have done was to get the king and say, send some troops to help us out quickly. And I'm sure the king would have done it. But the most important thing was to get before his God and do some business about his heart and the heart of the people of God. He needs to seek the face of God in heaven. So today I want to I ask a question and I'm going I'm to personalise it because I, I, I know that I struggle with this. I'm going to ask a question. Why do I automatically go for I'm going to go and do stuff compared to I'm going to go and seek God for it? My natural bent would be to go and there's a problem, let's go and sort it out. Let's go and work out what I can do. I'll go in on charges and try and sort out the issue. How comes that's what I automatically think I should do rather than saying, Lord, I need to get on my knees. I need to repent of what is going on in my heart. I need to seek your face. And I'm not saying as a church we shouldn't be doing stuff. I'm saying we should be making sure we're seeking God and looking for his sovereignty to intervene into areas... So that's what I'm going to look at, and I'm going to talk through a few areas of my life, I hope you can read this, uh, that, that make, make, make it a struggle for me to pray. And then, uh, and then we'll see where we go with that. And I want, to see, I want to see how Nehemiah responds, and I want to see even how Jesus responds in these situations. Okay. So my first reason I struggle to pray, maybe you identify with this, is lack of time. Life is busy, you wake up early, if you live in London you've got to work hard. I know that some people here, they work not just one job but two jobs, so you've got to go from one place to the other just to make ends meet. And nothing seems to slow down very much. And so you kind of, you get, get home from work maybe after a very long day and then you kind of sit down, you just need to, I, if it's me, I just need to watch something funny on TV for a little while. And so I watch that and then I'm tired and so I, I don't have time to pray. I've chatted to some people. I've got home at like whatever time. I've thought, oh, I'll give them a ring at 8.30, 9.30 at night. And they're still at work, working hard. I, you have got a busy life. And so how are you going to fit prayer into that? And for some of us, we might spiritualize it. You might say, listen, I've, I, I know I've got to pray, but there's also so much need to be dealt with. I've got friends that need a listening ear. I've got people that have got financial issues that I need to really help them with and serve them with. I've got people that are just, are just needing me and just needing to hear about God. And so how have you got time to pray? And I don't want to sound flippant about this, but I know a man called Jesus. And his job was the Messiah, the saviour of the world. And in his spare time, or the rest of the time, he's holding everything in place, the sun, the moon, and the stars. He's holding it all together at the, at the sound of his name. That's Jesus. And he made it his priority to spend time with his Father in heaven. I want to read this verse from... Um, oh, I don't know if I've put it in, actually. I've, I want to read this verse from Luke chapter uh, 5. It says this. So Jesus has kind of recently started his ministry... And it says this, but despite Jesus' instructions, the report of his power spread even faster. 
and vast crowds came to hear him preach because he healed their diseases. Jesus was going around healing people's diseases. People whose, whose lives were in turmoil, they couldn't do anything, they couldn't work, they couldn't do anything. Jesus was going and healing them. And pr- crowds were pressing and more and more people were coming because of their needs and going to Jesus and saying, you need to heal me. And then the very next verse is this, but Jesus often withdrew to the wilderness to pray. Jesus, there are so many needs out there. There are so many people. They're right there. How can you stop this and go off to pray? Why? Because it was a priority to him. He knew he had to spend time in prayer seeking God. He started his ministry by 40 days of prayer. It it says here he constantly, often withdrew into the wilderness to pray. In Gethsemane, when he's just about to die, what does he spend his time doing? Wishing it away? No, he's praying. He's seeking, not my will, but yours be done. Even when he's hung on a cross, dying, what's he doing at that point? He's in prayer, talking to his father. He took prayer seriously. And we haven't got time to pray. If you want to have a Messiah complex, you've got to learn to pray. <laughs> if you want to take something home, that's, that's what you need to know. You need to pray more. Second reason, waste of time. Prayer's a waste of time. And, and I have more sympathy for this. And can I just say, this is me. I, I, this is my issues. I know you'll probably identify with them, but they're things that I struggle with. Okay? Waste of time. I've prayed and I've prayed and God's not done what I've asked as a church, I remember we've, we've prayed for a family whose two kids have, you know, they're adults now, but they've been really ill for a very, very long time. And you're kind of like, God, we, why are we carrying on praying for this? You've not healed them. You've not made them well again. And, and maybe there's things in your life that you know you've just prayed and you've prayed and you've prayed. And do you know what? I can't give you the best answer. <laughs> Because there is something about a mystery in prayer. There is something that we just don't understand about it. I can say this, sometimes God takes us through tough times and when we do that, instead of praying, it's not about praying that God will get us through this trial, but that he'll teach us through this trial. That actually we're going to learn some things along the way. Tim Keller says this, God will either give you what you ask or give us what we would have asked if we knew everything he knows. (laughs) That's a cheeky answer, but it's true. We don't know everything. We can't see it on that cosmic level, but we know we've got a good father. Amen? Amen. So that's the one. Uh, Sin. Oh, I can't. you, what I did yesterday, the way I spoke to my, to my son, the way I, um, you know, what I did yesterday, what I looked at, what I said to someone, what, how I responded in a particular reaction, you know, I, how can I go and pray to God now? How can I do that? And I want us to look, look at two things, Nehemiah and how Jesus, for Nehemiah, sin wasn't a reason not to pray, it was a reason to pray. Okay, I, I can't go and do the stuff because I've got issues I need to deal with before God and so I'm going to go and spend some time praying. For Jesus, he, he, you know, the, the prayer, the great prayer that he prayed, he said, give us a day our daily bread and forgive us our sin as we forgive those that sin against us. So Jesus expects us to pray 
Uh, sorry, to sin. He doesn't, he doesn't want us to sin. Don't hear me wrong. He does, he, he's willing us to live lives of purity and holiness. But he expects that we are going to sin, that we are going to fall. And he says we need to pray that for forgiveness for that. I want you to notice in both uh, prayers, it's, dealing with sin isn't even the first thing. In fact, they're quite similar in one sense. So, so um, what's his name? Nehemiah, his, the first part of his prayer is to recognize the sovereign God of heaven and to recognize that he is one of the people of God. For Jesus, his first prayer, part of his prayer is that God is holy and other, and yet he's our father. We are his children. That's the first thing he prays, and then later on it talks about our sin. And so don't let sin stop you from coming to God. Worship him. Remember who he is. Remember who you are in him. Ask for forgiveness, and he is gracious. He will forgive you. But don't not, not, don't not pray because you've sinned. You should do it the other way. Okay, finally. No, I've got a couple more, sorry. Lack of creativity. I don't know if you get this. Uh, at prayer meetings here, sometimes I'm a little bit like, okay, we're going to pray for so-and-so. And you pray one prayer, and you're like, I, I don't know what else to pray. Um, and you, so you pray it again. And so you pray it again. And, um, and actually, sometimes we can find ourselves saying, why am I just saying or praying the same stuff again and again and again? And actually, that's to do with a lack of maturity in prayer, I think. Because the more, I've noticed this, the, the people that really pray, they can pray for hours and it, and it kind of moves on. The prayer isn't just a repetitive thing. It's, it's praying, it's seeking God about this thing, but in all different angles. And so we want to learn how to pray creative, uh, creatively. Some, for some people, doing things like upstairs, we had lots of different creative ways of praying. That really helps. Other people, they just need to get in a room and just pray, 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 and that really helps. But we, one of the things Nehemiah does is he spends most of his time, most of his prayer is actually scripture. Yeah. It's reading scripture and, and reminding God of what he said in his word and so one of the things one of the reasons we want to eat this we want to get this into our hearts is so that we know that we're praying in line with the will of God and so if you don't feel very creative open a psalm and start reading through a praying through a psalm or whatever because that will kind of breathe life into your prayer times and then finally the scariest one this the I'm taking that the scariest one I think the reason I don't pray is because I don't really trust the sovereignty of God. This is the most scary one. Sometimes we do what we do because we don't trust God and his power to do something about it. And so we go about and we say, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, I'm going to speak to that person, I'm going to do this because you're not trusting God. You're, not, you, you're just not. And so for Nehemiah to say, oh my word, there's a big problem, I'm going to go and sort it out, he knew, no, that's not good enough. I need to trust in my sovereign God and I need to make sure my heart is ready before I try and do anything in my own power. And so do you trust in the sovereignty of God? And my prayer for City Hope is that we would increasingly learn to trust in his sovereignty. I'm not saying we shouldn't do stuff. I'm saying we should be a praying church. We should be seeking God. We should be trusting in him increasingly. And that counts in terms of corporately, so as we get together, but it also in our personal lives. There's no point in coming to you know, prayer meetings 
if you've got no personal prayer life. Jesus says, you know, it's, it's all right to do it out in front of people, but what, what's going on in the secret place? What's going on when you close the door in your room? Are you praying? Are you seeking God? Are you trusting God? Are you, looking, are you interceding in those times? These are really important things to get in. As a church, we've got a few things coming up which are kind of designed to help us to pray, but that's, that's not going to help you in your personal life. That's about you getting together with God, maybe getting accountable with someone else in the church and saying, will you ask me how my prayer life is going and, 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 and check me in on that. So here's some of the things that we're doing soon. First of all, our prayer celebrations. Friday the 5th and the 2nd of October and the 2nd of November. I've got this amazing thing called a diary that I've started using. And it means I can make sure I remember dates. It's very good, very helpful. Um, but they're, they're opportunities for us to really, as a church, seek God together. And, uh, and I'd just encourage you, if you've never been to one or you kind of take it or leave it, take it. Yeah, take it. Let's not be a church that is constantly giving out and doing stuff and not seeking God for them. Why would we think we've got the power to do anything? So let's, let's get to those. Secondly, family prayer meetings. We're starting these. So on the same week that the prayer celebrations are going to happen, we've got a family uh, prayer, which is basically for, for parents with their kids to come along. And, and one of the aims of that is to teach us and to work on how we can pray together in families. So um, that's going to start at 4. The doors will open at 3.50. So there's, again, more dates for you to kind of take down, helping us learn how to pray together. Thirdly, last chance, men's retreat. We've still got some, day, uh, some, some spaces, but a lot of the men's retreat is happening next weekend. It's for us to learn to pray and to spend some time in prayer. And wives, I want to say, if, you've, if, you've, um, if, you, if, you, if you're a wife and you've got a husband, uh, which you will, um, <laughs> I, um, I just want to ask you a favour. If you're not doing anything that week, could you release them to come to it? Because it will be good for them. And it will be good for you because they'll, they'll come back in, ex, excited and kind of inspired to pray. So if, if you're a guy and you'd like to come on that, come and find me at the end and then I can write your name down. And the deal is, I think we've got, we've got a Women's Day in a couple of... 3rd of November... So you get to kind of swap around, so that would be good. There you go. Uh, that's brilliant. And then, for, and then finally, what, you know, freedom in Christ, what Stu came up to talk about. If there's stuff to be dealt with in your heart, please don't go around trying to live as if there isn't stuff to be dealt with. Stop for a little while. Take some time out. Don't feel bad about saying, I can't get involved in that at the moment because you've got to spend some time getting right with God. That's what Nehemiah had to do. And then he goes off and does what God's called him to do. So I want to finish by this. I'm sorry I've run out of time. First of all, it really struck me on Monday and I just wanted to thank... We've got, we've got a generation of retired women in particular who are phenomenal at praying. And on Monday, there was, it, there was people coming in, the, I think it was raining even, taking two buses to get here in order to pray with us. And I just wanted to honour you and say thank you for doing that and uh, keep at it. And we've got a lot to learn in terms of prayer from these ladies. And so let's go, keep going with that. <laughs> and then secondly, I, I felt when I was preparing yesterday that there might be someone who's almost come here today because they've got concerns for other members of their families. 
And I felt God say that he knows what's going on over there. But he's got some stuff to deal with in you today. And so if you think, actually, you know what? I came because I'm worried about my, I don't know, my son or whoever. I I feel like you should respond at the end. Come and find me. I'd love to pray for you. I feel God's got some stuff to do in your heart um, before he starts working over there. So next week, sorry, at the end of the chapter or the beginning of chapter two, he goes back after four months to the king and the king sees that he's sad and he says, what, what, what can I do? And he prays again, just a short prayer. And then, and then he kind of plucks up the courage to say, I need to go back to um, Jerusalem. And then the king says, go and do it. Next week, Paul's going to look at what happens when Nehemiah goes and uh, looks at the walls. That should be very exciting. Let me pray. Sovereign Father, I thank you that you hold everything in your hands. Lord, I thank you, Lord, that you, Lord, there isn't anything that you don't know is happening. Lord, sometimes we get news and it shocks us. It never shocks you because you saw it happening. And God, I want to pray that for me personally, Lord, you would help me grow in my understanding of your sovereignty and trust in it evermore. And I pray for us as a church, Lord, we, would, we wouldn't just be activists who go and do stuff all the time, but Lord, we'd be drawing on you, Lord God. We want to we do things in faith, and so we need to spend time in your presence. We need to learn to trust you and to, um, and to look for you for our resources. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, you would challenge us, Lord. I pray, challenge the men in this church, Lord, that we would become a praying group of men, Lord God. I pray, Lord, that, uh, Lord, you would do stuff in our hearts, Lord, to say, no, we're not going to leave here until we've got an answer from you, God. Lord, I pray that you would help us to grow in it. And I pray for everyone who is just a little bit further on than me and a little bit further on than us, Lord God. Let them be examples, shining lights to us, Lord God. We love to hear them pray and we love the overflow of their heart as it comes out in just joy and wonder and adoration and fervency. And I pray for those guys to really show us how to pray. In Jesus' name, amen.